Welcome to The Healthy Beast. We're here to talk about mental health, and I'm joined by a mental health expert, Noel McDermott, a psychotherapist with over 25 years' experience. I saw you talking on Sky News. You were saying what struck me as some really interesting stuff about how we can all build on our own mental health, how we can all try and safeguard our mental health. But as is the way with news channels, just as you were getting into it, Mm. the news anchor interrupted you. So I'm wondering if you could help me. It was basically talking about, this is something I talk about on the podcast a lot, about how the fundamentals we all need, what I see as the building blocks. Absolutely. I mean, I think they are surprisingly simple and straightforward and um, we can all do them. So um, physical health and mental health cannot be divorced. They go hand in hand and much of modern psychotherapy such as cognitive behavioural therapy is very much focusing on behaviour change so that you get into healthier habits. And we start off with the sort of building blocks on one of the most important ones is sleep. Sleep is a a really crucial aspect of uh, mental health and sleep is often the thing that's interrupted most when people have mental illness and it creates a vicious cycle. So we often will do with people a thing called sleep hygiene and sleep is something that you can learn to do well and learn to do badly. And people get into bad habits with sleep. So so we teach people this thing called sleep hygiene, which is teaching you to have good habits around your sleep, which include things like go to bed at the same time. Don't be going to bed late one night and early one night and expecting that you'll have a smooth regime. If you imagine, I know you're a father, but if you imagine what it's like when you have a very young child and you're trying to encourage them uh, to go to sleep, um, you wouldn't dream of one night taking them to bed at 11 o'clock and another night taking them to bed at 5 o'clock. And that's obviously absurd. They're not going to learn how to get to sleep. It's the same with yourself. And other things such as don't use stimulants for several hours beforehand. And they, they include things like uh, caffeine. So, you know, don't have caffeine just before you want to go to sleep. It's really counterproductive. Don't have sugar just before you want to go to sleep. Don't eat just before you want to go to sleep. So all these things are very important parts of sleep hygiene. The other things in terms of mental health and mental health functioning are eat, to eat properly and eat regularly. Uh, Very simple thing that you can do. So have your meals at regular intervals. Try not to eat too much or too little. Eat regular amounts. Three meals a day is fine with a couple of snacks. That's fine. Uh, But try and do them at the same time. Try and actually sit down for your meals. Try and be mindful of that you're actually having an experience and you're eating some food. And again, that regularity in what you're doing is very important. Another really basic thing to do is exercise. And I can't tell you how important exercise is in terms of uh, mental health and well-being. Uh, It's absolutely the sort of core of it. So get regular exercise, follow the guidelines on it. Even if that's walking each day and getting your 10,000 steps in or whatever your goal is, uh, it's absolutely crucial that you do that. And it's really important to understand that, that, I mean, I think people think of their mind inside their head, somewhere inside their brain. Actually, it's not. Your brain actually exists all over your body. So your skin is part of your brain. The central nervous system is part of your brain. Your gut is part of your brain. Your heart is a separate brain. It has an autonomous executive functioning of its own. So there are many aspects of your physical 
body which make up your psychological functioning in that way in a very real way in a very direct way and so you have to nurture that sort of physical physiological functioning to nurture your psychological functioning another one that people often overlook is uh, hydration just water eight <laughs> percent uh, of our body is water and if we mess around with that uh, we go into a really distressed state so being thirsty and needing water and not being hydrated uh, will have a, a profound effect on. Again, a, a good way to think about it, if you think about a kid, and we teach a mnemotic, I take a mnemotic um, to my clients, called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you've got any of those things, just stop and meet those needs because they will really mess you up. So HALT, it just means HALT, H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Just really out. H-A-L-T. Halt. And it means stop. Psychologically stop and meet those needs. Same you would do with a child. And uh, again, the parents will know this. The first thing you check when a child is upset is, well, do I need to feed them? Are they tired? Has somebody frightened them? Etc. Etc. Before you go into any complex theories about whether they've got sort of long-term mental health problems. It's all those basic needs. And that never changes throughout the whole of our lives. We have to meet those basic needs. It's funny that we seem to... Um, it's perhaps easy to understand it about children, but we don't treat ourselves in the same way. Which is why I use the metaphor that you have to imagine, no matter how grown up you are, that those early nurturing needs remain with us. All that happens as we grow up is that theoretically we can do them for ourselves rather than needing an adult to do it for us. So we can go and get the water for ourselves. But somehow when we grow up, we forget that we need to go and get the water and, and start drinking it. Um, but we do remember if we're nurturing somebody else. So if we can get into that sense with ourselves of being the good parent to the needy child within ourselves. Um, I like that phrase. Into... So being the good parent to the needy child within, within us. ourselves. Yeah. Is it, do, do people find this concept difficult to accept? Because I think, I certainly grew up with this idea that, I accept it's not the case, and you've just said it, but that mental health and physical health are somehow separate. And I think this idea used to even be taught. So, and, I, and I can see that perhaps people come to you and they want, I've got this problem, whatever it is, they want that fixing. And then if you start to lay down all these basics, do they, do they, is this ever the impression, well, that's, that's not my problem. I well, want you to fix this. Very often you get that. Very often you'll get a resistance from people. And I understand it, uh, which goes something along the lines of, you're treating me like a kid. This is all basic. Why are you telling me this stuff? It's all really basic. And it is really basic. And it's not meant to be patronising or treat anybody like a kid. Not that I think treating somebody like a kid is necessarily a bad idea. Um, as I've suggested, if we do think of ourselves as needy children, then we're in a really healthy relationship to ourselves. But um, yes, people do go, hang on, shouldn't there be a really complex psychiatric diagnosis with lots of pills going on here? And no, most of uh, what we do in terms of, uh, we're talking much more these days about what we call mental fitness. And uh, we're thinking about it in terms of the same way that we think about physical fitness. What does physical fitness mean? Well, it doesn't mean I wake up one day and I'm suddenly physically fit. What it means is I have a regime of exercise. 
and I will do things to make myself fit. And I will have certain types of goals that I can measure, which tell me that I'm fit. So one of the things I did during the lockdown was because the gym had closed, I had to change my exercise routine. So I set myself some goals around running and I went from couch to 5K. Um, and I do that regularly now. So that's, a, I can say I'm fit. And we're now talking about that in terms of mental health, that we have very clearly defined things that we do which make us mentally fit. And those basic things are all part of it. In the same way that if you go through a physical fitness regime, you have certain things that you do, that you know that you do, which you can then measure your physical fitness to. And we can measure our mental fitness to it. Other things I would add. It's other core things that add to mental fitness and resilience, if you like, uh, emotional, psychological resilience, are things such as uh, meditation. It's a really core skill. And people groan about this now, but I can't say enough how important something like mindfulness meditation is. Simplest skill in the world. It is the simplest thing to do because it's just about breathing in and out through your nose for a few minutes. That's what mindfulness is. Nothing more complicated than that. The evidence is if you manage to do that for five minutes a day, breathe in and out through your nose and think about your breathing as you go, as it goes in and out through. That's what mindfulness meditation is. No more complicated. If you do that for five minutes a day, you improve your mental health. You also improve your physical health. This is bizarre that uh, mindfulness meditation has an impact upon your genetics. It changes your genetic coding. It changes the ends of your genetic strands, which are called the telomeres, and it tidies them up and makes them longer. And when the ends of your genetic strands are longer and tidier, your chances of catching a life-threatening physical illness such as cancer is reduced. Isn't that bizarre? Just from breathing. Mindfulness is one of these ones, and I had a mindfulness teacher on the podcast a while back, and I put this to her. It's one of these ones that... When you mention it to a lot of people, there's a kind of drawing of breath and mindfulness because it's got this slightly airy-fairy not, not in what? mental health. Not Absolutely in- not in mental health. So if you can go and people can do this, they can Google a thing called IAPT, Increased Access to Psychological Therapy. IAPT, I-A-P-T, oh. Increased Access to Psychological Therapies. It's an NHS service that exists nationally. It's free. It's a mental health service. Um, anybody can refer themselves into it with all the common mental health problems such as anxiety um, and depression etc one of the core treatments they will give you it's what's called MBCBT mindfulness based cognitive behavioural therapy and also just mindfulness on its own um, so mindfulness as a, med- as a mental health treatment now is unassailable in terms of its evidence base it's so powerful that If you go along to these NHS treatment groups, they will sit you in groups and teach you how to do uh, mindfulness. There's a great book by a guy called John Kabat-Zinn called The Mindful Way Through Depression. Fantastic book. If anybody has depression and wants to understand how to use mindfulness as a treatment, as a standalone treatment for for depression, severe depression, get that book uh, and you will um, be able to get through your depressions fantastically. Maybe the maybe the prejudice against it was just in my head because I realised when I spoke to this lady I didn't really know what it was and I think it's one of the because it's thrown around a lot of uh, as a term so even in the, on the underground they'll say be mindful of and obviously that just means think about no but, it means breathe in and out through your nose. 
Take a second. That's all it means is breathing in and out through your nose in that particular way. That's literally what mindfulness is. It's a breathing technique. It really is. And what that will do will give you what we call the observer perspective. Okay, so you do this breathing exercise and it teaches you how to be an observer to your own physical reactions and your own uh, thoughts and feelings and to be in an observer relationship to those things. And once you're in an observer relationship to those things, once you're in the observer position, you can then make decisions about what you do about those things. You see them as information. So your feelings become information. Your thoughts become information. Once you're there, you can then critically assess what you do about that information. So let's say you have an anxious feeling. Uh, Prior to mindfulness, you would just say, I'm anxious. Once you've learned a mindful position on it, you go, that's interesting, I'm having an anxious feeling. That's interesting, I'm having an anxious thought. And then you can ask yourself the question, well, what do I want to do about that? Do I want to stay with it or should I let it go? Is there any reason for that anxiety? Is there a threat to myself? Once you're in that position, you're then suddenly managing that anxiety rather than being the anxiety. So it's notice, sorry to interrupt, it's noticing rather than feeling. You will feel and notice at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a form of disassociation. So it's not a form of trying to get rid of the feeling or change it in some way. It's understanding that there's another aspect of your mental functioning which is different to the experience. And then once you understand that, you can then make decisions about what you do about that aspect of your mental functioning. Whether it's an appropriate signal, I should be anxious because, therefore I should do something about that thing, or there's no reason to be anxious, I shall let it go. So you try to make the decision about what to do without involving the feeling. So you Absolutely. Notice, you notice so you notice it. A classic mindful statement, for example, is to imagine your feelings or thoughts or experience your feelings and thoughts as though they're clouds in the sky that are going by so you have an interest in them as opposed to an emotional investment and it's a very very powerful tool in terms of mental health i found i actually found it very helpful in ever since having this conversation with this, this lady i found it very helpful just just to observe things as they happen sure um and it gives you that time to kind of not not react not do this sort of knee-jerk reaction exactly. but just to think oh yeah as you say this, this has happened is 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 there something i need yeah to do yeah. about it yeah. if not i think allow it to drift away one of the issues about mindfulness is that it's because it's so easy to learn and use a lot of people have come into the field who uh, are mindfulness experts and you know, they may or may not be, and they're making overheated claims about it. But as a mental health professional, I can tell you that without a doubt, the evidence is unassailable that as a treatment modality for common mental health problems such as anxiety, depression, trauma, all sorts of things, it is absolutely invaluable. And it's a central part of any clinician's sort of um, toolkit moment Uh, and in terms of your own mental health and thinking of the mental health people who may be listening to this it is one of the best investments that you're going to make is to learn how to do mindfulness meditation so alongside sleep hygiene regular food and good food hydrating yourself doing mindfulness 
Um, and then the next element I would say, which is absolutely crucial in mental health, is having really, really good social network. Oh yeah, the social networks, this came up in something of yours I was reading, because yeah. social networks, of course, during lockdown have been kind of thrown into... Yeah, and I think there's a gender issue here as well. You know, in terms of how men and women typically socialise and network. That's, I think, a lot of guys tend to network in active situations. They haven't been in the habit so much, say, of networking and socialising by uh, jumping on the phone um, and sitting and chatting with their mates for a couple of hours or, or jumping into, you know, a video call and with a few mates and stuff like that. It's been more about um, there's an activity going on whatever that activity is, whether it's pub or it's a sports activity or it's taking the kids out or whatever, and then socialising and networking in that way in the real world type of activity. So for guys, those things have been removed completely during the lockdown. And so for a lot of guys, a lot of men, it's been really difficult then to sort of engage in the types of um, social networks that they might have engaged in. So I would say in general, uh, women have adapted to the lockdown and have transformed their social networks much more successfully than men have transformed their social networks. And and I think it's a real challenge and wake-up call for guys, this one, because, you know, we're going to be living with this event for three years uh, and or until we have some sort of vaccine. But if we don't have a vaccine, typically these pandemics take about three years before they become endemic and that we have enough immunity to it so that we can go about our lives and not worry about it too much. Uh, but until then, uh, we are going to find that our reliance, particularly men, our reliance on these active real-world social networks are very much threatened uh, by this event and so that we have to think about that. Now, the reason why social networks are important, just very briefly, the, the, the sort of science behind it, essentially where the social networks function in terms of our brain is in our frontal lobes and prefrontal lobes. It's our higher brain functioning, uh, our personality, etc. So those aspects of the brains which are, are stimulated most in terms of our networks and because of that and because this sort of social nature of ours is highly highly valued as a survival tool as a species level survival tool when we engage in activities which stimulate these frontal lobes we get huge amounts of reward chemicals flooding through us so um, good amounts of cortisol good amounts of um, oxytocin which is a bonding hormone that we have, serotonin, which is another mood regulating. So when we engage in these complex social group activities, all those types of really good neurochemicals are released into our system, which not only regulate us emotionally and provide uh, beneficial mental health feelings, uh, they also uh, physically improve our health as well. So we know from studies, for example, that people who live in isolation tend to die earlier than people who live in complex social groups. And they die um, much uh, less happy, so they have poorer mental health um, and they have poorer physical health. And, and the age gap is quite significant. Um, it's about, you can lose about 10 years of your life uh, by being isolated. And isolation and loneliness is one of the biggest killers, for example, in old people. So our older people in our society often live a very lonely and isolated life. And it's that which kills them more than anything else. Um, because isolation causes 
literal distress. Now, some people, for various reasons, choose to live in a very isolated way, and then they have really poor outcomes in terms of mental health, psychological health, relationship health, economic health. It's one of those things that we um, cause what we call global problems. And if we flip it and we have really good, complex social networks that we're part of, then every aspect of our global functioning improves. Physical health, psychological health, relationship health, economic health, etc., etc., etc. Uh, because these types of activities are so highly rewarded. And the more you work those frontal lobes with these complex, challenging social networks, uh, the more rewards that you get, literally, the more rewards you get. Your frontal lobes grow, your capacity to think grows, your capacity to feel better about yourself increases, etc. And then you have these knock-on effects where, because we live in a complex social world, if you're practicing, if you're um, practicing your skills, your relational skills in that way, they have the knock-on benefits of making you much more employable. You're better in groups when you go and employ, get employed. You're better with people. You deal with conflict. You you develop better leadership skills. You develop better um, decision-making skills, etc., etc., etc. And that all starts with this complex social networks. So I guess there are people that. They they struggle with this in normal life. Yeah. During during lockdown, this must have been this must have been multiplied. So there's people who are completely on their own, or there are people that, that are stuck with their family, the same group of people, yeah. and potential yeah. conflict as well, which obviously is into a whole different area. But yeah, this this must have been. I guess you've been seeing people at distance, but and Zoom calls and so forth. But how do you how do you help them with this when? they physically haven't been able to... Well, what we've seen so far from the figures is there's been a very interesting divide. So um, so certainly in mental health terms, uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people are in my profession sort of uh, indicating is that those of our patients that were patients of ours have understood that there was something dangerous going on and they have then really, really gone into all their healthy behaviours or their healthy psychological behaviours and many of those people have actually thrived during this period of time because so people who may have had issues before but when this happened they it what sharpened their focus on absolutely on their self-care and all these things that i've been talking about so they've gone into being very conscious about being very nurturing towards themselves making sure that they're sleeping making sure that they're eating making sure that they're connecting with people making sure that they're finding opportunities to connect with new people and making sure that when they could exercise they were doing it and they were prioritizing all of these aspects of their functioning over everything else because they understood that something dangerous was going on then there were people that you know, didn't necessarily have significant problems, were, were on the borderline and were not really at the point clinically where they'd reached out for help. And those people have been pushed over that border without a doubt. They've been pushed right over. And then there were those people that were no... So from, from, from not really needing help to desperately needing help. To really needing yeah, help, okay. without a doubt, yeah. needing help. Uh, and then there were those, and, and serious issues. I mean, so they may be teetering on the edge, but now they've gone over and they, they really need help. Uh, and then there were those people that were nowhere near needing help, but really close to it and have been shifted. So we've had this sort of, if you imagine a line... Um, a bar, if you like, where certain people were over the bar anyway and were ill, and that, but they really focused on that bar has shifted. 
really quite significantly. So what we're seeing, and the Royal College of Psychiatrists did um, a study around it a few weeks ago, about a month ago now. Uh, and so what we're seeing is that the pool of people that have, um, uh, if you like, mental health issues has grown. Mm. And within that pool, the severity of those issues has increased. And that is right across the board. Um, so some people have done really well, but for the vast majority of us, what's happened is we've moved into um, that area that clinically we would say, okay, there's some significant issues here that need help. It's funny because it seems almost there are two forces competing during this difficult time. And my anecdotal experience, which seems to be borne out by the various studies and so forth people have done, is that on the one hand, you're forced, you're, you're kind of backed, backed to the wall and you're forced to think about what you've got in your life and what you can do to make it better. Yeah. So there's that a positive pull, but there's also, there are negative pulls as well. So people drinking more, people... I don't know. Alcohol is a really good example of the sort of phenomenon that we're seeing. So a significant number of people have improved their alcohol functioning. And a significant, yeah, yeah. And a significant number of people have worsened their alcohol functioning. And the dividing line is this. Those that were, had a healthy relationship to alcohol prior to the lockdown, when they went into the lockdown, realised this is serious and actually just either stopped drinking completely or were very, very thoughtful. Now, those people that were drinking regularly and not very thoughtful about their drinking and would say to you, ah, it's not much of a problem, da, 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 now are in problem drinking area. Okay? And those people that were nowhere near in the problem drinking area but weren't very thoughtful about their drinking have come closer to it. And so again, it's that shift over. So we are seeing this significant split between some people who have really, really risen to this situation and really enjoyed it. Now, in terms of mental health terms, we can think about it like in this, this term. So some people during the lockdown, and I would be one of those people, actually functioned really well in the lockdown in terms of things like anxiety. I'm a person who gets social anxiety. I manage it. I know about it. I do it. But during the lockdown, of course, there was no social anxiety. For me, that was fantastic. You know, it was perfect for somebody who's socially anxious to be at home and manage everything through a screen, etc. Okay, perfect. Now my anxiety, my anxiety functioning has peaked because we've come out of the lockdown. I now have to deal with complex social interactions. Okay, um, and I now have to go out in the streets. I have to deal with all those types of things. So I can feel my anxiety much more. And that's true for a lot of people. You know, also coming back to what you're saying, there's been a shift as well, I think, in terms of for some people, meaning and purpose, which is what I think you're talking about, has really come to the fore as an issue. You know, what is important in my life? Yeah, that's the big one for me. Yeah. Particularly, you have things taken away from you, you suddenly can't do all of these things. You're forced to assess your life, you're forced to think, okay, well, what is it I really want to do? Some of us, very definitely, there's been a significant number of people that have 
thought about meaning and purpose in those terms. Okay, and so from a mental health perspective, I'm, you were talking about issues around possible depression, etc. So meaning and purpose is one of the great ways of dealing with things like depression, having meaning and purpose. So we have depressive feelings about things and it's okay, they come and go. But if we have meaning and purpose in our lives, we can really manage it very well. So for some people, you're one of them, I'm one of them. We've been asking ourselves, well, what is really important in my life now? And we've really focused on that. And I think that that has led and will lead to quite significant cultural changes. I don't think we're going to go away from that. So if we think about things like the workplace, the concept of what the workplace is, is now up for grabs. And I think, that, you know, things like, for example, um, the ability to work from home. The, and there's no way of going back. It's the, the game is over. That no employer on the planet can now say it's not possible to work from home. No, I understand that. And I think certainly forcing the conversation is a good one. But I mean, the, the, the working from it's, home it's cuts more than both that. ways, though, doesn't it? It's more than that. It's more than forcing the conversation. What we know from history is that times like this force social change at a rapid pace that would normally have taken 10 or 15 years or a generation. We know that. So wars do it. Pandemics do it. This will have done it to us. And we haven't even begun to understand the cultural shifts that have taken place. And I think the workplace is one of those ones that where there's going to be a massive cultural shift, particularly because it's not going to go back. There's no way we're going back to office culture within the next three years. It's just not going to happen because that's the cycle of the pandemic. That's how long it's going to take to cycle through this. Um, it only takes three months for a new habit to emerge. So neurologically, once we've done something repetitively for three months, that's it. We have the structures in our brain and we are going to go down that neurological route. We've had that three months. That's the way it is. Um, to do something new now involves significant anxious shifts in functioning. So people are going to stay with what they know and this is what they know. So I think that game is over and we're now thinking, well, what does this new future look like? Because we won't be going back. And it's really fascinating if you listen to somebody like Boris Johnson, for example, and the way he talks at the moment is that, no, there's no going back. We're only going forwards. And we say that very much in mental health terms. There isn't any going back on this. There's only a way of going forward. There's no going back to a normal. It no longer exists. Do you think this is adding to people's sense of detachment or not being able to understand what's going With on? Because, you know, we, we, all know, we all know the world's changed, but we don't know in what way it's changed. Absolutely. And living with uncertainty is a particular skill that we need to... Living with uncertainty produces in and of itself these transition points in our life, produce anxiety. So if you think about there are three key areas of our life that give us if you like psychological stability that's our having a stable home life and love relationships having stable loving friendships outside of just the home and having a stale stable sort of work life every single area has been challenged and every single area has will continue to be challenged because we don't know what any of these look like and for work you for children you substitute school um, so all those three areas were massively impacted um, during the pandemic, during the lockdown phase, and are still being hugely impacted because we just don't know which direction it's going to go. 
And so our resilience, our ability to feel comfortable within ourselves has uh, been reduced because of that. Now, for some people, as you say, they've really embraced the opportunity and they're beginning to sort of reevaluate and they're beginning to look at their coping mechanisms, their skills, the way life should be, the way they might want life to be in the future. But for the vast majority of people, this uncertainty is a real problem. Now, it's not surprising that during this time of psychological uncertainty and rapid transition and change, what happens? Well, we have a, a lighted match of a political event that then produces uh, significant social unrest within various cultures. And that's not surprising, um, given what's going on at the moment. We then have to now factor in, and in terms of mental health, I mean, this is very serious stuff. We have to factor in what happens after the furlough, for example, and the fact that people will be losing their jobs. Now, this is going to have a significant impact on mental health functioning, because we know studies show us that for every 1% increase in unemployment, we have a 0.8% increase in suicides. There's almost a one-to-one -one relationship between the two. And, and suicides, in particular, disproportionately affect men. 75% of suicides are guys. So... After we come out of the furlough and we see what level of redundancies and unemployment we've got, uh, we're going to have significant problems. We know that. But because we know it, the good story is this. People say, oh, it's doom and gloom, but it isn't. Because we know this, it means we can do something to prevent it. We literally can. It's like this. I, I, I can't... If I had a penny for every time somebody told me how difficult Christmas is with their family... Um, and uh, and sort of and they come and see me after Christmas and go and I I always have exactly the same response to my clients and say oh Christmas I say but it happens every year at the same time it doesn't shift it's a known event we can prepare for it and I do this with all my clients I go okay let's have a look at your calendar the birthdays Christmas the other holidays these are going to be stressful for you can we plan for that please. And can we prepare you for it? That's where we are right now. At this particular point in history, we absolutely know that we are just about to step into and are in something highly stressful that will produce known responses, known mental health problems. And we have absolutely a wonderful opportunity to step in and mitigate those problems right now. Because we know it. It's not... We don't have to be surprised about it. Like we were surprised by the pandemic itself. Okay, some people have predicted they'd said it was going to be. But actually nobody was like, oh, it's going to happen in February 2020. That wasn't possible to say, right? And it came and then we had to catch up with it. Well, we're not in that position here. In terms of the mental health, it's absolutely known what's going to happen. We absolutely know what is happening right now. And we have a brilliant ways of mitigating against it. And I've described some of the things that you can do on a very individual level. And people can do this now. They can start doing this. And guys in particular can do this now. So this is back to, sorry to this is back to the building blocks of, of your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. sure you have everything. And in, in particular, I think one of the most crucial things um, is that we have to talk about what's happening for us. So um, I used to be a social services manager for many years. I worked in uh, children and families in social services and worked with children at risk of abuse. It, it's, it's 
it's challenging work and partly it's challenging because you sort of have a reality that you actually can't stop children from having harm it's just not possible because we can't have a society in which we have drones following everybody around everywhere you know that's the only way you could just stop this stuff but what you can do with children is you can teach them one of the most important skills around reducing the possibility of harm which is what we call help seeking behavior so if you teach children to ask for help when they're worried and upset about something if you make it safe for them to do that we know it's absolutely cast iron that the amount of damage that will happen to children significantly reduces. It's exactly the same principle when it comes to mental health and mental welfare and psychological well-being. That you teach people, ask for help when you're worried about something. Doesn't matter if it's small, doesn't matter if it's big. In fact, it's more important that you teach people to ask for help when it's small. And it's one of the things that guys in particular are absolutely appalling at. One of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that guys make up 75% of suicides is that when they have small amounts of psychological distress, they tell themselves it's not serious, it's not important, I won't do anything about it. And then those small bits grow and grow and grow and grow and get added to. And what most people don't understand is that those small bits can grow very quickly into very big bits that once you're psychologically distressed you're then no longer thinking rationally about something it's obvious to say isn't it you're no longer making sensible decisions and you get to a point where it feels like there are no options except to end it all whereas if you would have gone at the beginning of that process when it was just a small problem i'm feeling a bit anxious today and talk to somebody about it that actually may have got rid of the anxiety but also you may have had a response like this which is the crucial response, do you think you need to do something about it? Do you think you need to go and get some help with that? And that help-seeking behaviour is absolutely the most fundamental thing that we... So that's what that cliché means. Talk about your feelings, talk about what's going on. That's what the cliché means. It means that you're asking for help. You don't need to go, I need help. You just need to talk about what's going on for you so that somebody can listen to it and they can go, oh, that's normal, that's all right. Or they can go, you know, I think there might be a problem here. You might want to think about getting some help. That's what's going to save lives, and that's what's going to help people the most. When you're seeing people clinically, do they, do they question um, how, how much this approach will work when it's things beyond their control? Because I can understand that you're talking about preparing someone for Christmas that they might find traumatic. But if, if there's this... And you said, oh, yeah, we know that there are economic problems coming. But if a person in their particular case says, well, I don't know if my job's going to be here in yeah. three months. Yeah. So there are real world things that happen all the time. But the studies show that uh, certain people are more resilient to those real world events than other people. And the people who are more resilient, and resilience simply means uh, the ability to bounce back. So it's the, the image of your the stalk of grass in the wind rather than the oak tree. And the oak tree is more likely to snap in a storm. Whereas a stalk of grass will just flap around and it'll be fine at the end of the storm. Um, so using that image, the studies show that there are certain key things that people do who tend to be resilient and weather storms. And guess what those things are? Oh, right, okay, they sleep, they eat regularly, 
they stay connected socially, they hydrate themselves, they exercise. You do these types of things, they do mindfulness meditation or they do some sort of practice like that. It might be prayer, but same, that same sort of thing. It might be engaging with, with nature. We know, for example, that if you're um, a nature buff and you go out walking in parks and things like that, again, it shifts you into right brain functioning. It's a very similar state of mind to mindfulness meditation. So you do these types of things and you're more likely to be resilient to the storms of life and more likely to... Uh, resolve because th there's a saying that uh, when you can't change that out there what you're left with is this in here and that's the thing you can change and we can always change our response to external events but we rarely can change external events and if we think about that and we think about genuinely how much power do we have over external events in general? Can you change things like the tides? Can you really make people do what you want if they don't want to do it? Can you change the train timetable? Can you change the sun coming up in the east and setting in the west? Think about the things you actually do have power to change and it is very, very small. Now, yes, we can in everyday life, we can do things like have great influence on other people and we can negotiate with them and we can get people into uh, complex strategies but only because they want to and it fits their goals. We can't actually force them. We don't have any real power over people. We don't really have much power anyway. And when we get into turbulent situations like this, then we begin to, because we get anxious, we begin to feel like we want to control more and we have to be counterintuitive and we have to sit back, let go of that control thing. Because what we do when we try to control what we ultimately have no power over is that we make ourselves feel more anxious, more depressed and less effective. But when we let go of control and then make a rational decision about, well, what actually can I influence in this situation? And then we work and use our energy, our focus that we have on the things we actually have power to change, and then we change those things, then we feel so much better about ourselves. And that mostly comes down to the basics of, of, of our own lives again, the food yeah. and the rest and the, and the social context. Because something that came up in a, a few podcasts ago was about my, my profession. I spent most of my adult life as a news journalist. And whilst I found that a fascinating job, in terms of how, how beneficial it is psychologically for us to listen to the news, there's a very big question mark. Yes. Now, since I'm leaving the newsroom, I've cut down a lot on the amount of news yeah. I listen to. And in fact, I was listening to it on the way over here. And its, it's design is, here's a load of stuff for you to worry about. Almost none of it related to your to your actual life and in fact the lockdown was one of those rare occasions where this does actually affect you because we're about to tell you what you are and aren't allowed to do so yeah. so this was a this was a case which on the one hand it's it's more relevant to your life because it's restrict it's, it's actually going to restrict your life but once you've got that basic information of what you can and can't do listening to daily death tolls and things like that seems to me Terribly completely insane. insane. Yeah, completely insane. It's really, really bonkers thing to do. I'm kind of torn between, yeah, I'm talking about 
how much we should and shouldn't listen to the news. I think just observing young people in the parks around London, they look like they've had enough and they're just going to get back to... But you know what? It's like that was always part of the planning, without a doubt. And if you remember right at the beginning of this process, you know, there were very clear signals coming out from public officials and the government saying people will get tired of this. This is the time, it really is, in terms of psychology of human beings, this is the time to let them be tired when the risk is relatively low. Let them be tired, let them go to the parks, let them get drunk and be dumb so that they do get over this. Because motivation to do something, most people don't understand that motivation is an emotion. And it's like any emotion, if you overuse it, uh, it begins to fade. So if you only focus on being happy all the time, uh, you end up being really, really, really unhappy. So emotions come and go. You can't overuse them. And motivation to do something is another one. We know that in mental health. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, when we we talk to people about recovery from depression, we, we don't talk about do it if you feel like doing it. We don't talk about motivation because depression attacks motivation. So we give people structures and diaries and we say, you do it because it's in your diary. You don't use motivation as a way of doing things. Same way with addiction recovery. You don't talk about motivation to do things. Okay. So, so the old-fashioned the old fashioned step out of it is the, absolute, is the worst. Absolute nonsense. The worst possible. Absolute nonsense. Chin up, son. Cheer up. Absolute nonsense. Because you've, you've got to let that sadness... Well, I don't know what the right word is. Let it pass, let it let it happen, let it well, occur to you. And if, if somebody's depressed, they need treatment. And most of the treatment involves what we call behavioural activation, which is doing things that will make you get well. Now, one of the things that happens when somebody's depressed is they lose the motivation to do all those activities that, when they weren't ill, they really liked doing, like seeing their mates or going for a bike ride. So you'll say to somebody, no, 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 you will go and see your mates even though you don't feel like doing it, because we know that will get you well. Oh, no, no. You will go on the bike road, even though you don't feel like doing it, because we know that will get you well, because these activities do make people well. That's it. There's evidence and unequivocal, right? And so you put it in people's diaries and you say, you're doing it because it's in your diary. You're not doing it because you want to do it. You're doing it because we put it in your diary. And I'm going to check that you've done it. And you're going to be accountable to me as your therapist. When you come back next week, I want to see that you've done it. Or, even better, when you're doing it, you will text me and you will tell me that you've done it. Or I will text you and go, have you done this yet? So if someone's, if someone's depressed and, they're, and they kind of can't see the point of life yeah. anymore, it's not your job as a clinician to explain to them why no. life is valuable. It's, it's more of a procedural thing. So you get them doing the right do thing. Do this little thing, this little thing, this Absolutely. little thing. Absolutely, and you'll get well. And you'll get well. And then when they come out of the very deep part of the depression, you can then have the interesting conversations about what the meaning and purpose is. And then you can future-proof against depression because meaning and purpose is really, really important, right? Uh, but if somebody's so low that they can't get out of bed, it's really not much point in having a nice philosophical conversation with them about the meaning of life. It's like, no, get out of bed, brush your teeth, wash, eat go for a walk once you do those things then we can have a conversation you know so life is very very straightforward at that level and very very straightforward and mental health is very very straightforward at that level and we really need to understand that 
that if we do certain types of things, the things I've described, we are really making it possible for ourselves to be fit and healthy from a psychological perspective. I mean, in a lot of ways, because well, you know, when you're talking about the structures of the brain and so forth, yeah. these parts are complicated. And really, it's very simple. It's really Because as you started off saying, you can't, you can't separate it from your yeah. physical health. Yeah. So it's just taking little steps to make. And even when people have complex psychological problems such as bipolar or psychosis, etc., etc., these really um, worrying terms or or post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever it is, doing these other things as well will definitely improve them as well as the specific treatments for them. So this this stuff is the underpinning of all mental health and well-being. That we get these right and we maintain these things and we reduce our risk of becoming ill in the first place. If we do become ill, it's going to be less severe and it won't be as protracted. And then there are other things that we can do in terms of suicide reduction, for example. So we can encourage people to talk about suicide feelings. One thing we do in terms of um, suicide reduction in the UK better than anywhere else in the world is have really good conversations about killing ourselves. We do here. In the UK, we're so much better. Whenever, because there are these whole complicated things called suicide safe spaces, etc. These are various things that have happened in terms of trying to reduce. Because there's been uh, a pandemic of suicide prior to this virus pandemic um, for many years. So suicide rates have been on the rise in most industrialised, uh, post-industrialised countries for a decade at least. We've seen a doubling and quadrupling of numbers. Um, so it was already a significant problem that was growing. And so there's been a lot of work done around understanding why that is and also what sort of um, processes we can put in place to ameliorate it. So, which is why I say, you know, we know this is going to happen. We have the tools. Okay, let's just put them in place uh, and, and then reduce the risk of these. But one of the things that in the UK were brilliant at is that having really deep conversations about trying to kill ourselves. Do you think, do you think we do? We do, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So you're talking about people amongst themselves or we're talking about in the media? Facilitated conversations amongst people who've tried to do it. So I remember sitting on a a panel judging um, sort of best practice within the workplace mental health and um, there was a construction company construction is you know still uh, largely male dominated and suicide is still largely male dominated there's a particular project they're working on as a specific part of the uh, development of Battersea, Battersea Power Station and this one project had no suicides at all during the whole of its run which is unheard of for a construction project, okay? All construction projects have suicides because they involve guys, right? Guys jumping off the scaffolding and killing themselves or jumping in front of a lorry, etc., etc. All of them have them. And it's one of the significant problems that happens on building sites. So this is a known thing and they do it in the workplace? Yeah, and so they put in place... And this, it was the simplest thing that they did. They put aside one room which was designed to facilitate talking. And that's all it did. And they had somebody in there who they gave a little bit of training to, um, where guys had come along and they could have a chat and a chin wag, and they were encouraged to talk about whether they um, felt like killing themselves. And there were people in there who would talk about having to try to kill themselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then that, and simple as that. No suicides. Isn't that extraordinary? It's incredible. Isn't that incredible? Because it, it is this kind of dreadful taboo. And, I know. And 
and one that yeah, I've heard this a lot. I mean, sadly, I know a couple of people who've um, killed themselves fairly recently, yeah. and this thing that you, this reaction you hear quietly and and away from the ears of anyone it might affect is this anger that they've done such an yeah. aggressive thing. So yeah. so there's this anger of among the people left behind mm. because I mean it's an it's a, it's an awful thing to imagine someone getting into that state where they're prepared to do something so horrible to themselves, but. Then to have the people they left behind, angry behind, yeah. angry with them. Yeah, um, it's this almost like no one wants to admit that that they would be capable of doing it. Yeah, and we're all capable of doing it. The most important thing you can do with somebody who's feeling suicidal is give them an opportunity to talk about it. Which is why the Samaritans are amazing. The reason I'm mentioning the Samaritans, if anybody's listening to this and anybody's uh, having suicidal thoughts, we call it suicidal ideation. Phone them up and talk to them. They will listen, they won't interfere with your life, they won't try and stop you, they will just listen, and that's the most important thing that can ever happen to you. And I think their number is 116. So if you dial 116, you'll get hold of Samaritan. So they're 24 hours a day, 24-7. One of the most successful mental health projects on the planet that has ever existed, saved more lives than anybody. They're absolutely extraordinary, they're brilliant at what they do, and all they do is listen. And you go and talk to them about how... As a mental health professional, I give out their number to all my patients who are feeling suicidal and encourage them to phone and talk. And there's other, you know, there's other amazing projects like the Big White Wall, which is also really good at reducing suicides. The Big White Wall, thinking about our times that we live in, um, is a a secure online space, a bit like... um, you know, a Facebook environment, but, you know, you have to become a member of it and your GP can pay a pound a week for it. And it has a massive impact in reducing suicides and reducing medication levels amongst people with mood disorders. So we have these amazing organisations and structures. And the Big White Wall was um, something set up in the UK and it's going international. And, and these types of resources are fantastic because what they do is they provide safe spaces in which people can talk about subjects that other people find frightening and difficult. To listen to and think about it somebody listening to this if somebody actually comes up to you and says i want to kill myself how would that make you feel it's a very difficult thing to listen to without becoming incredibly frightened and immediately you know wanting to phone an ambulance and get somebody banged up in hospital and locked up and often people don't need that all they need is to be listened to and to be heard and that will often stop them from doing it. Because if we, if we take it back to lockdown, and you do a lot of work with families, in, in, when, they're, when they're stuck together, they're yeah. perhaps not the best people to talk to. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I've done a lot of work with families during the lockdown. Like, um, just before this interview, I had a, um, a, you know, a family session as well. Because, I mean, one of the things about... There's been, there was a lot of stuff in the media about isolation being the big problem. It wasn't the big problem in lockdown. For most people... The big problem in lockdown, particularly families, was um, being too close to each other and being on top of each other. So it was being hot housed. And uh, we, we were not brought up with the appropriate skills for being crammed in a small space with people for three months where we had to do all aspects of our lives at the same time. Our school, our home, our social life, our family life, they all got crammed into one place. And we had to do this in front of each other and not have enough space in which to get away from each other. We just didn't. None of us had those skills, all right? 
because none of us had grown up in a kibbutz or in a prison, which is the equivalent type of spaces, yeah. right? We just hadn't. Yeah, because however good your relationship is with your family, even the perfect family, if such a thing existed... That's right. There's no way we were... Much. There was no way we had those appropriate skills. So I've done a lot of work with families in terms of just getting them to understand that it's okay if there have been cracks. It's really okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't imagine that it, it's because it's a sign that you have a fundamental problem. If if there weren't cracks emerging, to be honest, I'd be a bit more worried. To be honest. Oh yeah. What I continually say to myself every day is not the priority to do homeschooling, but am I being nice to my wife? Yes. Kids? Am I being yeah. nice? To them? Yeah. And you and I try my very best. You yeah. Can't, you can't do it all the time. What I've been arguing with people is I think one of the most important skills at the moment is forgiveness. It's just learning to forgive and forget. Those things that maybe you would in the past have wanted to, we really need to talk about this. I didn't like the way you did this. We just have to let that go at the moment. And we just have to forgive, move on, let it go, say, no, it's fine, that's not important. That was a very valuable thing that me and my wife learned maybe a month in, I think, was we're going to annoy each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, learn yeah, yeah. to just... Let go of it. Back off. Let let everything go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just let it go. Just it's not important at this point. It really isn't. So avoidance of conflict is probably a really, really important skill at the moment. And just giving each other oodles and giving yourself oodles of compassion, you know, and just saying it's okay. It's this is difficult. Um I don't have to do this well. I just have to get through it. Do the basic things that are good for us. Yeah. Let go of stuff. Don't hold on. Think nice things about yourself and nice things about um, your loved ones um, and focus on those things at the moment. That's what's important. Okay, fantastic. That's a great way to end and it's been very useful for me and very interesting to hear. Great. People want to find out more, you're noelmcdermott.net. Correct. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Noel McDermott. That book he mentioned, The Mindful Way Through Depression, is by Mark Williams, John Cabot, Zinn and others. The Samaritans, in case you need them, is 116123. Thanks very much for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.